everybody it's Richard's Mountain Bike Show and this is a special episode I've got a special guest a chap called Sean White um, Sean has been in the industry for so long the theme for S Express was the number one in the charts when he started in the industry in 1988 Sean welcome to the studio Thank you very much, Richard. Are you, are, you, me. are you impressed? Is this the first time you've been in a studio like this? I mean, did the receptionist get you coffee and everything? Got me a lovely coffee. Thank you very much. We'll Fant have a top-up soon. <laughs> Fantastic, mate. Hey, look, um, everybody, this is a really fascinating podcast for me to do because I came into mountain biking relatively late on. I was mid-30s before I got my first mountain bike. And chatting to Sean... Um, there are there are some trends. I mean, I kind of want this podcast to be about how the hell did we get to where we are today? And and who honest honestly, you know, and I kind of want to focus on Sean, you know, the the insanity of a magazine pitching it that your first bike is over two thousand pounds, because that's kind of where yeah, it's happening yeah, at the moment. Right, yeah. How the hell did we get to the point where someone's first bike is more than someone's car? You know, is, is so I kind of want to work backwards and you're the man to do it. So can you give me a brief, how did you get into the bike industry? How did I get into it? Well, it would have been, well, 88, S-Express, top of the charts, Easter. What a, what, a, what a song that was. What a song that was. Do you know how many people, of the four people who listen to this podcast, at least three of them will never have heard of S-Express and they're going to be Googling it now. But So yeah, so I got, I didn't know what I wanted to do at university. Um... I was into my mountain bikes. I was on my second mountain bike, which would have been a Saracen Trekker XT with an Blimey. all black Shimano Dior XT group set, exclusive to Saracen, I think. Um, that's before the brand got into Halfords and into, it was now owned by Madison Cycle. So this was when they were based in Warwickshire. Um, so I had a Saracen, and before that, I had a Diamondback, uh, which I bought from a windsurfing centre down south a in the windsurfing south. windsurfing centre. Yeah, there was a connection then between people windsurfing and mountain biking, I think, in the off-season. Well, I mean, what, was it as, uh, as simple as they were outdoor pursuits? I think so. I think. There was, there was hill walkers and fell runners into mountain biking, uh, as much as people coming from the sort of road and touring-type background, really. Uh, anyway, so I was on my second mountain bike, uh, which I'd got from Oxford, been into Beeline Bikes in Oxford and got that, um, with some birthday money, I think, possibly mid-18th birthday. Anyway, I, there was a, a job in the Cotswolds in Sirencester in a little shop called Noah's Ark. Uh, that shop is still going under new owners, just called Noah's, down this street. And that's pretty impressive, Oxford. actually, for, is, for a bike yeah. shop to be... So they had a, Chris, who owned it, Chris and Charlotte, they had three or four uh, little shops at the time. Uh, and there was the Siren Sisters shop. They had a, they had a uh, sign up in the window. They were looking for some staff. Uh, and I thought, well, I don't know what I'm doing. I'll go in and have a chat. So he, he, had, a, he had a chat. He um, had a look at my bike to see how well I'd set it up, squeeze the brakes, and oh, okay. So he wanted to, he wanted to know whether you were kind of just some guy looking at, yeah, it, or yeah, actually yeah. you cared about bikes. It, exactly that, because at the time um, he was looking for somebody to run one of his shops, and really a one-man band in the shop. So small shops. He had a he had a shop in Dursley, Sirencester, Cheltenham, and then he had his main shop, which was a house workshop and, and main shop over. Near Stroud, that's where they lived. But he was looking for somebody for his Cheltenham shop. So he seemed to... What was the profile? I mean, those days, I suppose, 
did you have the mountain bike qualification? So did you have to go in with a level two Nothing. bike, no, whatever? No. You just had to be, what, an enthusiast? An enthusiast. Uh, I guess we went up to the bakers, sat down and had a chat, <laughs> small interview, no CV. He liked what I was what I was saying. Uh, the bike was up to up to scratch, which was good. Um, and then a few days later, I had the keys to a small shop in Cheltenham with, and you know that was that was over so, to me really. So so going going back, presumably, you know the so where did you did did bike shops at that time have an affiliation? Hey, by the way, is this sounding like a proper interview? This is good, isn't it? Well, it is. Yeah. This is like yeah, yeah it's yeah, like proper yeah, and everything. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still, I'm still amazed. I'm four episodes in and I just, yeah, it's brilliant. But, um, so did, how did a bike shop, did you buy them? Did you have an affiliation with a particular manufacturer where you were Trek dealer versus whatever back in those days? Well, this or... is interesting where they started actually because um, Chris, and Sh- Chris and Charlotte, uh, before they were into, Chris has always been into bikes and motorbikes, um, but their business, Noah's Art, was mostly doing new and second-hand kids equipment prams i think and and, okay. and nursery equipment and they got an account with rally this is this is from my memory they got an account with rally bikes and started doing some rally kids bikes and a few recreational adults bikes and this was really before you were rolling into bike shops and coming across the american brands that you were reading about in the magazines and of course there was a few smaller bespoke um, British brands making bikes over Briz in Bristol, just in North Bristol, with doing custom mountain bikes, Roberts in London, in Croydon. There was so, a- so even these guys, sorry, even these guys, you sort of about buy your first bike from a ski shop. So these guys, it still wasn't, it was still bikes in the back door as, you know, on top of selling other kids' stuff. Well, this is where it had started, but this was, when I went there, it was a bike shop. But I think rewind a year or two before I was there, and they were solely, you know, kids' nursery equipment. And this was, and this was mountain bikes, such as they were at the time. Well, they, yeah, and absolutely. And I remember, and very soon after I started, or as I started, um, they had some specialised and they had some Marins. Um, but they were quite different from the, the, the rally bikes they had were split between the recreational stuff, which pretty much came built with our handlebars twisted round and a cloak of cardboard off over them. And they were the, the rally lizards and the sort of 200, okay. 200 pound bikes. And then rally had a special products division, which were the more expensive, more specialist stuff. Okay. They had a team using them, um, Reynolds tubing, they had some bonded frames um, and they also rally in the UK at the time were bringing in some quite different rallies from the States under the Rally USA name, um, which was interesting. So were the, were the American ones a step, I mean one they presumably must have been a bit more exotic for a UK buyer yeah. going, oh my god I've got it, because I mean everybody wants to buy the latest. Well I think but... there was more aluminium from my memory. I um, said, did they bring over innovation as opposed to just new brands? Well at that time there wasn't really any suspension of course, okay. so we were looking at rigid forks, um, steel or aluminium frames. Um, and and basically, we were then bringing. Uh, we were there was a distributor for Marin or Marin, um, as it should be called. Specialised. Those bikes were coming out of boxes and needed a bit more assembly, and as you say, slightly more exotic feeling about them. Really. Did they? What components did they have then? 
I mean, well, what, it, was it the Shimano SRAM? Well, no, going back, that's a good point, because back then Suntour was up there with Shimano. So okay. Suntour XC Pro was sitting there against Shimano XT and then at Shimano XTR when that came along. So Dior XT, XTR from Shimano and Suntour XC Pro were were all top flight. So kids. kind of even even going back that far, bikes were still you could still have competition for the frame but but also you could have a better set of components you could you, oh, could, have, yeah. you could have a, yeah. you know you could upgrade your components so. absolutely i mean back then where we have got we've gone big and wide now wide handlebars wide tires then it was skinny tires sub two two inches um you know under 500 grams a tire now we were cutting handlebars down instead of bolting on wider bars so it was all about when when the enthusiasts were coming in, they were trimming weight out of everything, and we were weighing things in the shop, really. So, so, so I, no, I can't I can't let this go. I think you I think you know I think you know my love of fat bikes, um, yeah. and you regularly take take the Mickey out of me yeah. for it. So, in your at the time, races were on sub. You know, they were on tires less well, than one, one point one point five to two inches, and, and I mean the and what, what roughly what psi would you have been running at the well, time, probably, sir? In the tubes because tubeless yeah. wasn't about. Although there were some tubular tires. Going yeah, yeah. Back come then. on, come uh, on. Don't well, we were looking at forty psi. So you'd have one point five inch tires at forty psi. What on your current mountain bike, Sean? Yeah. How wide is your tire? Well, I'm on 2.4s normally. And what and I'm, PSI? I'm pressure, I'm on 23 front, 25 rear, on a 29-inch wheel, of course, which weren't around then. So? So that's another thing. There's a reminder then that we were simply on 26-inch wheels. No, no, the point you know I'm, I'm working my way to very elegantly is from there to that you are basically halfway towards a fat bike. Well, yeah. You started at 1.5-inch wheel at 40 PSI, tyre at 40 PSI. Yeah. You've now gone to a 2.4 at 25 PSI. You are just a mere hop, skip and a yeah. jump yeah. from a 4-inch oh, tyre right. at 8 PSI like I ride. Well, I can remember when fat bikes were first in the magazines. A guy called John Stamstead, I think, Stamstead. Stamstead, I think. Um, and that's when there were two rims... In effect, two rims and tyres, to my knowledge, sort of fixed together. And, yep. and custom USA builders building frames and forks to, to suit that setup. And that was really for sort of racing on the, the Idita bike race, I think, which was across Alaska. So there was little niches like that bubbling away in the background. So actually, they've always been. It's quite nice to know because I wanted okay. to a different chat to you about in a different episode about fat bikes. But so these kind of niches, we all sort of think we've got, they've actually been around yeah. 30 odd years as well. Yeah, well, I'm trying to remember when that came along, really. I mean, certainly that would have been pre 2000s. Um, so there was a lot going on in the 90s, really, from the from the late 80s, early 90s uh, through to the you know the year 2000. There was a lot of experimentation going on. Um, so so you you got that first job that was sort of 88 ish. Yeah. Um, what did you do? Did you then stay in the bike shop world, the retail world? Well, yeah. I mean, I then moved from that shop down to Surrey to a shop that's now where well, you'll be familiar with really um it was on smithbrook kilns in cranley which yeah. was moto sport again um, moto sport mountain bike shop predominantly um probably more more brands than noah's at the time i mean this was this was a, a couple of years in i think from working at noah's um 
I mean, they're really, I, that was a fast track to me learning about dealing with customers, doing basic repairs, um, ordering bikes. So they really, I, I, when I was at Noah's, I went to their main office and got stock. So I could move things around between stores. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of cool that, I mean, that, that guy who, who gave you that opportunity, you had no qualifications, you totally. were just an enthusiast. Yeah. Yeah. And actually gave you the framework to, it's almost, almost like I said, I was going to sort of combine it with an apprenticeship, but actually it was more responsibility than an apprenticeship. More you totally. were, here I'm, you are, get yeah, on with it. And yeah. I had a set of keys and there's stock there and I could drive from my home in the morning before work to their shop, take their old Mark 1 Ford Transit. Oh, you're a classy some, guy you pops, are. Pop some stock in there, uh, bikes, bits and pieces. There was no sort of documentation of it in terms of computerisation. And it was all done on sort of trust. Yeah. Um, and then we'd move stock between the shops. I'd, then I'd go to Cheltenham, unload it, and then a day in the shop, really. So you then moved to, you've got experience in other shops. I've got to ask, what's the... No, I was going to say, what's the worst customer? I don't mean there was a guy called John who was a dickhead. I mean, like, what is... What's the challenge? What, what, oh, see... You've even dressed up in a nice way. Yeah. Who is your most challenging your customer? customer. What, okay. what, who's, who's the person who walks through the door and every bike shop worker who's listening to this will go, will go, oh, God, I know what you mean. Yeah. Well, I mean, basically, there's, some, there's a term in the industry called JRA, uh, and it's probably used in other industries as well, but um, it basically means just riding along. And uh, you'll get maybe a dad dragging uh, son's bike, this is what it would normally been in. Pretty modest bike, probably been dirt jumped or on the ramps or down the quarry or the downhill tracks yeah, yeah. or whatever. And he's broken it and dad spent a lot of money on it in his terms, even though it might have been 300 quid rather than 3,000 pounds. Anyway, it's broken and he comes in unhappy and usually he or maybe his mum will say he stroke she was just riding along when... The wheel buckled, the tyre popped. The, oh, the, I see the what you mean. The, so, rear so. Derailleur, the rear derailleur went in the rear wheel, and it's often the first few words were he or she was just riding along. Which and is this the JRA, happened. The JRA. And that can be a difficult one because usually you can see from some telltale signs the bent saddle rails, um, just the, the way the bike's set up, um, the look in the lad's eye, you just think, well, this has been taken beyond its, its design remit, but actually... Do, do you know what? I, I, to I, I totally get it. And do you know why I'm, I'm grinning, um, which obviously no one can see because they're listening. I, I'm grinning because I, I did some, some work with, you know, I'm a big fan of some ICAM, the Chinese yep. carbon. Yep. People describe Chinese carbon as if there's one factory churning the stuff out. And a couple of people on the internet says, I was just riding along and so and this bit broke, so I'll never trust. You've got no idea where they've just been doing 12-foot drops to flat for all Absolutely. morning. Yeah. Or, 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 or their mum reversed over it in the bloody driveway the day before, but they'll never admit that. And they've got a million views on, on YouTube saying, oh, I was just riding along and this carbon bike broke. Well, it is <laughs> so, tricky because you, you're working when somebody's in the bike shop and one of the many challenges is trying to find them a suitable bike. Yeah. I mean, you can talk money first um, and say, what's your budget? But they don't really know what they need to spend to get the right tool for the job. And that's part of the salesman's job to steer them. Um, and it's easy being an enthusiast to think, well, you should be spending a chunk of money. Um, and I had it 
around that era when I bought my first hi-fi setup, you end up spending more money yeah. than you want and you, you need bigger speakers for a bigger room. And I sort of came out sort of with a bit of sticker shock, as they say. Um, but if you don't sell them the right tool for the job, then it's usually going to end up in some disappointment that you've then got to manage somewhere down the line. Or you've really got to sort of guide them through the range. I mean, I mean, back then there wasn't suspension to soak up the bumps. There wasn't drop a seat post, so it wasn't difficult to take a bike but out. I, of I suppose it, actually there was more was, territory. Yeah, I suppose actually what you're describing is there was more accountability because the chances are these days they're just riding along. They will almost, almost certainly have bought the bike off the internet or, or direct sales or whatever. So you're probably not the shop that sold them the bike. So right. whereas what you're describing is they probably got the bike off you and have now come back in and said, I was just riding along yeah. and, and yeah. this fell off. Yeah. Uh, and everyone in the shop's going, there's no way. We've sold 5,000 of these. They've never just fallen off. But madam, well, madam I'm sure you're right. That's right. And also, <laughs> we, didn't have in a, we didn't have a single chain ring up front with a clutch derailleur and maybe a chain guide. There was triple chain sets, three rings at the front seven, eight, nine or whatever at the back, chain slapping around. I mean, in the early days of downhill bikes, there was some pretty ugly chain devices going on, but that, yeah. was, that was in the downhill scene and you didn't really see many of those bikes coming through the, through the bike shops. But it was really average riders, um, be them grown-ups that were new to it or youngsters. Is, is that one of the skills? Coming in and, and basically not really realising what the limits of the bikes were. I mean, is that one of the skills? I mean, you, you're still, we're going to chat a bit you're, you're about what you're doing now, but you're still in retail. You still help friends out. Still you're still working with retail and, and, and website copy. Has, has, the, has the retail experience, the people walking through the door, I know the products changed massively. Have the people, I would guess, not really changed that much? It's still the same. Yeah, I mean, I mean in some ways, you can. it's easy to review things online now. So... There's good and bad in that. You can get guided by that, but equally you can get misled like buying any product, really. You think well, we've got five out of five stars here and then we've got people with one and two stars. Um, Is it the same like being a, you know, someone, a doctor or whatever else, just you know, the early days of the internet? Oh my God, we're so old. We're older than the internet. You know that? We are, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Christ. But yeah, I mean, one of our four listeners is going to be like, "What do you mean? Surely there's nothing before the internet. The world didn't well, exist." Well, I, I remember <laughs> certainly remember the simplicity of um, the first bike shop I worked in. We didn't have an electronic card machine. It was a clunk clunk. Oh, the ones that would take your fingers off. Yeah, yeah. Oh. You put your card and a little duplicate or triplicate slip on there, and chunk chunk. It was that, or it was cash. Um, so things were simple then. Obviously now you can process a, a 0% finance agreement online with a mail order company and the bike arrives, you take it out the box, it's pretty much built. There's a little bit of checking over to be done, but there wasn't that way of purchasing a bike. And I think if you're going to do that now and bypass the bike shop route, um, you'll have done your homework. You may have spoke to a few friends, you may have been on some forums certainly sat there with a good few evenings. Do you, think, do you think that makes it easier? It's a bit of a, you know, not controversial, but if you sold someone a bike and it's gone wrong, there's more accountability, as we just said. If someone brings a bike to you that they bought from direct sales, etc., 
it's not your bike you sold to them. Presumably there's a greater opportunity for the bike shop to say, oh, we've seen a few of these or, you know, fudge well, it. And... It, it. It comes down to the personality and, and experience often of the, of the person that meets you when you walk through the door. I mean, I tend to look at it as, well, you've bought that bike mail order. Maybe it's a bike you really like, a bit like buying a car. You just think that's the one I fancy. That's yeah. what I want to own. And there's a lot of good product out there. Um, and there's maybe some resistance to going into a shop and, and, and being steered into something that's actually, you know, is the right tool for the job, but actually it's not quite the one you want to own. Yeah. And, and maybe you're not, you're not being too hard on the product. You just want to scooch around on it and around a blue route. And, and actually, if, yeah. you, if you want a long travel enduro bike to go around the blue route, then and you're happy with that, then you don't want to be dissuaded otherwise, really. Um, but do you think the profile of shops has changed that they used to sell their own bikes, whereas now there is there is there a shift very much to um, a, a new shift towards their mechanical side of it, so the servicing, so, well, so I mean, servicing you can, more you themselves. Can, you can welcome, I was with a, a friend's shop down south, and, and there was a bike from a brand that they could have supplied um, and didn't. Um, chap lived not too far away but who knows how he ended up with this bike near it might have been ordered online at 10 at night or whatever but he came through and with with an issue um that was potentially a warranty and they welcomed him in because actually he's got it online that's the first thing okay but he's not going to go to that online shop for service uh they're his nearest dealer for that brand they can set his suspension up, they can welcome in, or you can say it didn't come from us, we're too busy to deal with that. So I think there is some circumstantial differences between shops and, and certainly dealing with warranties from bikes that have been bought online or elsewhere depends on how that brand is going to work with you as a retailer. If it's a lot of shops are very busy with a lot of admin and it's easy with what looks like a simple warranty problem to end up taking a, a lot of paper, you know, a lot of digital paperwork. And well, it's time. It's time if you if you actually apportion the time. So, so your attitude, you know, with that shop, I, I think feels to me just just as the most fundamental customer service level, the right one. As in, you bought the product elsewhere, but you've got the, now the opportunity to make them your customer. Well, to right. sell them yeah. three three services over the next two and a half three well, years because, and because it's easy to sort of um, you know look at it as a negative that they've bought a bike that you don't sell uh, from online or a bike that you could have had from them I mean you don't know it might have been a family gift and they've got this this bike and it's, it's with them but Almost the first time they need some help is, is they're going to either phone you up, email you or walk in the door. And that's really the start of the potential relationship. So in a way, this is how bike retail has changed. Um, some shops will say we only work on bikes that we, we sell. Um, others will, certainly when, when it comes to e-bikes, and that's another world altogether, um, they'll only work on, on e-bikes where they've got knowledge, experience and training on those electronic you know, power systems, batteries, motors, etc. from the brands they work with, because that's a can of worms, really. So there is a little bit of caution needed, but if you're taking, say, a 29-inch wheel, 150-160mm travel trail or enduro bike, with SRAM or Shimano parts on, then most mechanics should be able to work on that. Yeah, and actually the components are largely universal. They are, um, they are. I feel, I feel like we've gone down 
a far too sensible route because that okay. was like that was like coherent. It was yeah. it was. Inte- I mean, yeah. I mean, this Some is not chat. this yeah. is not what this show is about. Okay, fire on. Next question. Most stupid innovation in you've seen coming through in the bike industry. Come on, let's have it. Where you've been sitting there, or you've well, read a magazine article, and you thought, "Ah, oh, for the love of God!" Well, there we- was there was a phase in the nineties where there was a lot of customization to bikes, and probably as a general category rather than a specific product. I was going to say carbon tri-spoke wheels, but I know you're sporting some of those on one of your machines. So uh, you just couldn't resist couldn't that resist little dig. My, I love my carbon tri-spoke wheels because they're ridiculous. Well, I tell you what, if you start looking at it, there's fewer moving parts on there. You've not had a problem with them. And I tell you what, you know, people get bent spokes. It's not going to happen with mine. No. And should some small animal come towards me, whereas normally they could cause you to crash, it'd be like a helicopter blade slicing its head off. Well, you're, <laughs> you'll be old enough to remember the the mag wheels on BMX. I don't remember that. You do. I you do. don't. Then you had to put them in the freezer. This was the, what? the put them in the freezer to straighten them. That was apparently the, the chat back in the... Hey, 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 going, I mean, Christ, uh, no, no, hang that's on. That's going on. back to the 80s, not the 90s, so that was, you know... You had to put a wheel in a freezer. Well, these were mag wheels, so they'll have been, you know, a composite... I, I grew up by the only reason I'm saying I didn't. I, I one I wasn't into biking until much older, but also yeah. I grew up in in Singapore, in Hong Kong. So 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 some of the trends that were yeah. were around, I, I missed out on. But anyway, of that era, there was a little bit of sort of customization. Quite a lot of pride in bikes, how what they look like, how little they weighed, and then we got into replacements. There's a company called TRP that did a lot of titanium. Uh, replaceable bolt kits for derailers and brakes so you could not only add some quality hardware but potentially trim some weight but there was also what in the bolts well well, it it was all that sort of everything all these little places of of weight saving added up when you wanted to move a bike from and we were talking in pounds back then to you know from 22 pounds to 21 and a half pounds really we were I suppose without big suspension and big other things, actually the core bike well, very didn't simple weigh as much. Bike, yeah. Really, very simple bikes. Foam, foam grips, lightweight tyres. I can remember with a friend, we'd take six Panerasa Smoke Light 1.9 tyres, six stock tyres. We'd take them all out of the box, weigh them all. One of them would be 50 grams lighter, let's say. So that's 50 grams saving for nothing. Yeah. So the scales were out a lot. But equally, there was people going a little bit silly. It was, you know, um, what we're talking really, uh, aluminium bolts where they shouldn't be on, 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 on high stress areas. So, and, and there was also frames and cranks getting built, not quite from the looks perspective, but they weren't really, you had to be careful. But it was form over parts. function, as yeah, it were. Yeah, I think there was. And we, there, was, there was quite a lot of product that was taken beyond its normal sort of, so, so actually, yeah, the worst, so the, worst, the worst, there was a phase of when actually people were, were changing stuff for the sake of it, but fundamentally well, making, lot, them, making yeah. the product worse. I mean, there was, a lot of, <laughs> there was a lot of upgrading. There wasn't really as much of the sort of buy a bike, ride it for two years, put it on eBay and sell it. There was buy a bike or a frame and almost within a day or two, um, you, you were upgrading little bit titanium rail saddles, narrower, lighter tyres, trimming the handlebars down. So actually um, that obsession, I thought it was more recent, so that obsession with, I mean, I, I have 
Yeah. Well, you've got colour code. You, you've gone purple mad recently, haven't you? I, I've gone appropriately purple, yes. Yeah. I've kept yeah. it in key. Yeah. And that was, again, that was a guy I'm going to interview, a guy called Graham Foote, who's, who's a buddy who runs a shop down in Gloucester, who, who maliciously and, and knowingly, when he was building my wheels, said, oh, the black hubs aren't in for a while, I've got some purple ones, knowing full well in his devious bike shop mind that I would then be compelled over the next few months to colour match everything well, on the bloody the bike. Yeah, the yeah. brake. Oh, oh, the, uh, the, oh the, the cranks. The, um, he, he then phoned me up. Actually, he, he didn't even have the guts to phone me up himself. <laughs> when I took the bike in for a service, he said, Here's a, one of the guys who works in the shop says, we've got a bottom bracket in. He says, look, for 30 quid more, you can have the Hope purple one, well, Hope, knowing full well that I was going to spend that Hope, money. Hope were early, <laughs> obviously... British manufacturer. Terrific brand. Terrific brand. Royce yeah. engineers, some of them. UK design product. So right for our sort of riding. They were early on with disc brakes options. Um, they were early on with anodized colours. Yeah. So that was a brand that you might go to. Um, and interestingly, the, 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 uh, the cleaner and the clean, bike cleaning brand, Muckoff. Yeah. Before they were Muckoff, they were X-Lite. So okay, I didn't know that. Set up by Rex Trimnell. It's his son now. Rex Trimnell sadly passed away some years ago, but his son runs it. Um, and X-Lite did the chicken sticks brake levers. So super light brake levers, anodized colours. Um, I'm trying to think what else. X-Lite bar ends, because we have narrow bars and bar ends. Um, anodized bar ends. So narrow flat handle bars, 22, 23 inches in, in old sort of yeah. imperial. Um and bar ends, anodized stems, so quite a bit of exotica brought in by some small distributors in the UK, like Evolution Imports down in Croydon, um, who were bringing... But these, these were quality, sort of going back to some of the, you know, you say the worst bit was some of these um, customizations that made the product well, worse was, and they weren't... there was cheaper versions of the premium stuff coming in from the Far East, often through distributors that just were popping up that aren't are no longer around really um no name far eastern stuff coming in which obviously we see quite a bit of badge engineering now where you think well that multi-tool is the same as that multi-tool with a different brand on it in the 90s we were seeing that's that sort of thing coming in with oh, i don't know handlebars and cheap seat posts in, in anodized purple that were nothing particularly exotic at all but if you wanted to add a splash of colour to a fairly modest bike and if you bought a five yeah. six hundred pound hardtail or, or, or mountain bike as they were known then because we didn't really sort of get onto the hardtail term until suspension came along yeah um, but yeah there was a, we started to get the market awash with cheap fairly compromised lightweight colourful products really that under normal use shouldn't have been a problem but Ultimately, I, I, think that's, I think that's one of the issues, though, isn't it? You know, like you're talking about, if someone comes in, you can't really tell from the bike or the person. If someone comes in with all the gear, it's probably less likely they actually know how to handle a bike. You know, I, I, I ride at the Forest of Dean like you, and you see some people who, um, you know, just look particularly average, and then you see a video clip of them or something on a bike, and my God, they're fantastic, yeah. and they're big jumps and landing you know, big jumps or whatever. Um, and actually their components, they couldn't afford. They sh there's no in a million years they should put on a cheaper component because they're going to bloody break it. Whereas 
most average riders would never do a jump that would, <laughs> and, I think, <laughs> would and I think now we've moved on to bikes with bigger volume tyres just not fat bikes or plus size tyres we're, we're on our way there we're on we're our, on our way, way there, there. Yeah. but bigger volume tyres tougher sidewalls an average 29 inch trailer enduro tyre now I mean is weighing around the kilo mark yeah. so over twice the tyre so okay we're talking a bigger diameter wheel 29 inches but um Bigger volume tyres, much better suspension. Chances are rear suspension or a hard tail with a with a, a an aggressive riding focus yeah. on them. Stems and bars with less flex in them. So what's what's the so that that's good stuff. So we've said the bad. What's the best innovation? So you've been in the, in the market for thirty odd years, thirty plus years. Um, there have always been tweaks. There have been refinements. What's the one thing that you think? That's brilliant. That came in. What, what's the one upgrade that you know? If if it didn't come with a bike, you'd definitely buy it. I'd put a drop. I'd put a, a drop, drop a seat. Drop a seat post. You think that's significantly? I, and I agree with you. By the way, yeah. I I think it's. The, I do. I didn't. I wouldn't have said so in the early days of them because the early models weren't that reliable. There was quite a lot of side to side slop, all cable actuated, but not all reliable, and. I came from the bike retail sort of side of things, so I was looking at reliability and, and if that needed to be a simple product, then great. And actually, because my riding was more from a cross-country background, I wasn't dropping the seat post a huge amount, maybe a couple of inches yeah. to drop down something a little steeper, but I wasn't doing any real gravity work. And then, of course, downhill bikes back then you would just have the saddle slammed down anyway and you'd be pushing them back to the top of the hill um but i think the proof i think you're right so, I think the proof's in the so pudding. for me i when i started uh when i started doing a bit of part-time uh product testing and writing with with dirt website um which again is sadly no longer around but was had a huge following in the sort of trail enduro downhill jump I mean, up, roughly so. in your 35-year career, how many businesses have you? Have I worked for? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Crumbled. Crumbled. Well, <laughs> hey, hey, hey. I know the Daddy. shop's still there. Daddy. Hang on, the shop's still there. But, so, yeah, dirt, dirt, was a, dirt was a sort of specialist, wasn't it? That well, was a real... That, yeah, yeah, that had, a, that had a, a strong focus on gravity riding. I mean, I was really more of a cross-country lad there. I mean, I was there for the last few years. Um, but that's when, I mean, dropper seat posts came in um, probably sort of 2010. Um, there was a couple, a couple of from a small American firms that weren't that easy to get hold of. Um, but yes, and then the RockShops Reverb came along with hydraulic routing. Um, do you think, do you think, I mean, I... So you, can, now you can draw you... a timeline from stuff. I, I think it's more significant than many people, because I think when you could get the saddle out of the way, I, I, I wrote some guys who, when I've got a dropper post, because I kind of, I'm on that innovation curve. If something's yeah. new and shiny, I'll waste all my money on it. You want it. Yeah. And, and I was riding with two guys who were both more capable than me, and they looked at my dropper and said, well, you just get your bum off the back of the seat if you're going down something. Within six months, they both got a dropper, and they were both taking on more advanced trails. Mm. possibly, and I, and I don't want to give him too much credit, but thinking, actually, the dropper may have actually influenced people's mm. style of riding or confidence well, to take totally. on something. And it also came along when we weren't concerned too much by adding another 
250, 300 grams to a seat post. Yeah, where of course. If we went back in time, we would have run a mile from a heavy seat post. However, you may or may not know this, but back in the 80s, um, there was a product called the Height Right. H-I-T-E-R-I-T-E. Never and heard that of was it. was a little spring, cantilevered spring that went on your seat post bolt and round your seat post itself. Uh, you'll have to Google it, Richard. <laughs> and um, that allowed you to undo your quick-release seat collar and push down on the saddle with your bum and drop the saddle probably an inch and a half, maybe two inches. Wow, okay. So those were around way pre-1990, and I can remember having some of those in a shop and not even looking at them thinking, who wants one of those, really? Because back then it was very much either a, a downhill bike or it was a cross-country bike with a saddle jacked up in the air, a small frame, and your handlebars much lower than your... Yeah, yeah. I mean, completely different setup really. I mean, we've still got that set up on modern cross-country bikes with a big drop to the handlebars, but modern cross-country race courses are getting more technical and short travel drop of oh, some, I mean, some, of the, some of the drops on the cross-country, the XC, yeah, you know, uh, and you look at them and you think, you know, if there wasn't a cross-country bike, you know, big 29 wheels, whatever yeah. else and whatever, if you hadn't seen that bike on it, you would have assumed it was a downhilly, an enduro, an enduro course. type yeah, course. Yeah, but absolutely, yeah. So, although cross-country, there's still a weight focus um, on the bikes, a lot of carbon, lighter weight tyres, short, short stroke droppers with maybe 50, 80, 100 mil at the most, uh, lightweight droppers. Well, that's what I worked. I mean, just, just to finish off on the dropping, I, I worked out, you know, I was, again, 150, must be more than 120, must want that. And, I, and then I realised that actually... Whatever the dropper does, my legs, my knees and my old back... We've got to support the bike. Of, well, right. only go down so, so far. far. It doesn't, it doesn't yeah. matter if the dropper... I need my dropper to go down four inches. Any more than that's irrelevant because my sure as hell my bum's not going down anymore because no. <laughs> my, my knees are old well, and rubbish. I, I remember with droppers in the early days of having, having them, I would only drop them down. 50 mil or so. Really. It was just to, just, just literally to get it out of the and, way. And, and actually over time I got used to longer droppers, smaller seat tubes on, on bigger extra large bikes and slamming it out the way. And as you say, it tends to go hand in hand with starting to push into more difficult territory and not feel that the bike is, is holding you back. So and that yeah. goes whether you've got a 120 mil fork at the front on a hardtail or a long travel enduro bike with a 184, 160 at the rear. That that ability to drop the saddle and let you move around the bike, get your centre of gravity lower, is is a huge benefit. And also, I find technical climbing up switchbacks, um, just being able to drop the saddle an inch or two when we're down to walking pace, and you're almost off and on walking. Do you? I I I always have my leave my saddle up because I feel on a tough climb I'm getting the full leg extension. Well, I'm talking more tight switchbacks on, oh, okay. on corners where the bike's almost stalling, but getting your centre of gravity lower and be able to move your body around a little bit. I find that advantageous. I don't see that happening on cross country races that I watch. Really, I think they just drop it for the descents to let them move around. Um, but I think. The benefit I I've, I really wouldn't want to be without a dropper seat post on a proper mountain bike. I think on a gravel bike, bike packing that type yep. of thing, wheels on the ground, longer distance stuff. Um, 
I could do without. But okay, I mean, I think I, I, do you know what? I, I kind of want to massively disagree, so we have some sort of podcasty argument. But no, yeah. I totally agree. I think that's the one thing I'd have. That's your retail stuff. You then went into copywriting with the website and uh, touching on journalism. So you, you, who do you write for? You do long-term testing. I do some long-term testing for Test Bike for MBR. So I have, a, an M, have a, a trail bike that I do a monthly report on over yeah. 12 months. I've tended to choose a hardtail and now my second hardtail with them. So no bad thing for, for MBR really because I think there's a natural tendency to be attracted to a, a full suspension bike or even an e-bike um, as a long-termer. But I quite like hardtails. I've grown up with, with hardtails. So. Do, do you think having worked in... I, I do a lot of, a lot of work with, with, with media. Do you think having worked in a bike shop um, you've got a slightly different view to the guys in their 20s or whatever who have gone, I presume, from being really, really shit-hot riders to then writing about, and they just want to write about really cool stuff at the high end of everything. And, you know, we're kind of going full circle of... I was going to ask you about, is there, when you write a review, do you feel a sense of responsibility in terms of what you're reviewing and who your audience is? Well, I, I think it's easily easy to... That get... was like a grown-up question. Yeah, well, it is, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, I do think I pick up on some things, certainly on a long-term bike. In fact, when you, I've done a few first looks for MBR on some hardtails, and actually, first off, you either find there's, there's a big difference dynamically and you've got something to write about straight away, or you're thinking there's a there's a bunch of bikes here that feel the same, and then you've really got to start either spending more time on them to get, a, you know, to notice a difference between their sort of riding qualities, or you've got to well as well as looking at the specification and seeing what where they pin, penny pinched any any. So I suppose you've got to judge them on the price point there. They're pitched at. Um, yeah. I, I've got a bit. It's one of the. I, 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 you guys don't do it, but I've read. I've seen it in other magazines where they're combining bikes, and for whatever reason, they're, they're they've stretched the category of an eighteen hundred pound bike and a two and a half gram bike are not the same thing. No. I, I know. I know. Sort of sometimes, but and I think no. You know, that's a lot of money to throw into components, and then they say, well, of course, the two and a half grand one is. Oh, has a much better you know, drivetrain. Well, 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 of course, it bloody has. You'll know that. I mean, when you start tipping over the thousand-pound mark, you start picking up on things like dropper seat posts, and as importantly, quality tires. So, a cheaper steel beaded twenty-five-pound tire, which you might find on a bike sub thousand pounds, can still start appearing at fifteen hundred to two thousand pounds. It might be it might be quite light and simple and cost effective to put on there, but then when you start seeing a tire from, let's say Schwalbe or Maxxis with the appropriate rubber compound, yeah. tubeless compatibility, even if the bike arrives within a tube, you can set that up tubeless or get the shop to do it. Um, so are you writing a review? Actually, this is, this makes perfect sense. So you're writing a review on the on the assumption and the I guess the correct assumption that. Someone's been bought this bike for Christmas and they're not allowed to change anything. So, well, so you're not, you shouldn't assume they're going to immediately out of the box I change mean, the tires. That, or... that gets picked up, and in some of the tests that MBR do, they will put, or a lot of them, they'll put a controlled pair of tires, usually some proven maxes ones, across the board 
to, so they're testing the bike on a level playing field. But as you come down in price, there is an assumption that that customer isn't going to want to start spending 45, 50, 60, even 70 quid a tyre off, yeah. off straight, straight away. They're not necessarily wanting to buy a drop of seat post, try and fit it, then take it into the shop and get them to fit it and pay them. Yes. Yeah. It's a faff, certainly with internal cable routing, which you know isn't always straightforward. So... I think back in the day, we tended to look at a bike and judge it on the level of equipment. So back to the early, earlier on in the podcast, Suntour XC Pro, Shimano Dior yep. XT. There was bragging rights, if you will, on I've got a, a clockwork, an orange clockwork uh, XT equipped, or is it Dior, or is it yeah. Suntour? This was kind of before suspension forks came along and certainly before disc brakes came along. So that's really, you had your frame, which was steel or aluminium, obviously various qualities, and then you judge the bike on the equipment level. Nowadays, we've got some pretty expensive bikes with fairly modest transmissions. Now, there's some weight in those transmissions, but there's probably a strong case for the fact that you're going to snap your rear derailleur off before you've worn it out through mileage. So yeah. having the right wheels and the right tyres, the right cockpit, bar and stem, a long stroke dropper seat post, those are things that are going to affect the dynamics of the bike immediately and your confidence and potentially your ability where whether you're on... 12-speed Dior from Shimano or 12-speed SLX, there's going to be some longevity differences. There'll be a little bit of weight, but actually I wouldn't be too bothered whether I'm on that one or the other if it meant I put having the money put into other parts. So we're, we're, we're dangerously close to genuine consumer advice here with this question I'm going to ask you, which I, I, I kind of... I was hoping this would be more... Um, piss taking and silly, but we've actually got a little bit serious, which is, yeah. which is, it's, I didn't want to go down this road, but we are. When someone's looking at a bike, for whatever it is, if they're, yeah. if they're, you know, what is more important? Is it more important to have a a lighter, better frame for, forgive the the crude use of the word better, better frame with worse components, or buy a bike with a slightly heavier frame but with better components? Let's assume that someone's not going to immediately throw some money at it. Most people's budget is their budget. You know, if they're, if they're at two grand and they want a trail bike, is it better buying technically a better, the best frame you can with the lowest, the lower range of components? Or would you get the highest spec components? Well, I mean, I think going back to the early days of, of my t bike tray, weight was a big thing. Now we didn't, now we tend to talk about geometry. Just give me an answer. Okay, I would say go for the better frame with the cheaper parts. Perfect. Yeah, as I say, it's it's uh, yeah because people are out there and they and they I mean like me you know Christ I you know sell sell a bike part sell a fork etc. Yeah. And and I've sort of got a little bit of knowledge in certain areas, and I look at bikes and I sort of that fundamentally is quite a, I think a core question because you can always change the other bits. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there are. I mean certainly for somebody my weight ninety kilos or thereabouts. You know, I'm going to be harder on a bike than my wife, who's substantially lighter than me, um, and she doesn't ride in the same manner. So if we were both looking at the same bikes, I'm going to have slight, you know, weight is going to be, or lack of weight, a lighter bike is more important to her. Me yeah. as a stronger, more powerful rider that's probably more aggressive as well. 
then weight doesn't always necessarily... So actually, so actually, if somebody's going to buy, and if it's like someone buying a kid or first second bike, and they want to get into, they know they're, they're going down a more downhilly route. Yeah. Fundamentally, the, 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 the strength or, or, the, or the quality of the bike yeah. is more important. Which then, what you just said, is it true that you abused your position? You abused your position of trust in the bike industry, in the retail bike industry, to seduce a woman who subsequently became your wife? I did indeed, yes. <laughs> yep, yep. Gemma was, uh, she entered a competition with Health and Fitness magazine uh, who teamed up with Trek, who were running the Bontrager, which is Trek's sort of component and clothing brand. They were running the Bontrager 24-12, 24-hour, 12-hour sort of wow, okay. events that went on through various summers. This is going back probably um, 12, 13, 14 years ago. There was a lot of these 24- or 12-hour relay events where you could enter as a team okay, before yeah. you could do a solo. There's fewer of them now, but they're still around. Um, there was quite a few marathon events there. So they were looking... They were they teamed up with Health and Fitness magazine looking for four women to basically write in and say why they wanted to, to get involved. Um, and, and getting involved meant being part of the team training, doing a monthly blog, um, and sort of... So Gemma ridden much before She all? had a basic mountain bike, I think, a cheapish hardtail, so she hadn't really ridden much as a proper proper mountain biking. So she got the phone call saying she'd won, um, and Trek was supplying a bike. It was originally going to be a hardtail, and then they moved on to offer a Fuel EX. So each of Great the bikes. four, four girls had a Trek Fuel EX. Um, at the time, Trek were distributing Nike cycle clothing when Nike were involved in, in cycle clothing. So they had Nike shoes, some Trek and Nike kit. So were you, were you the, they supplied it via your shop? Yeah, then? so she turned up at the shop basically needing to get sort of sized up. For the benefit of listeners, he just started grinning. Ah, oh, this soppy grin when he mentioned yeah. how this girl yeah. showed up in his shop. Yeah, that's right, <laughs> on a busy Saturday. And uh, anyway, so... Um, we got her sorted out with a bike. Um, we got a different size to what track we're going to suggest sending through um, just to get the fit dialed in properly. Uh, then she was on flat pedals but wanted to go on to clipless, so help with that. But anyway, um, Vicky, who you know as well, um, she worked in the shop at the time. Um, and then Gemma came out riding with us, really. Um, and He's still so, grinning, by the way, everybody. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> So um, it's kind of it's kind that, of sweet. That's, in a, in a... that's how we met. That's right. <laughs> so so you then you then sort of got to know. That's yeah. that's fantastic. So again, but that's wonderful. You met through yeah. a shared passion, yeah. uh, you know, a shared love of cycling, yeah. etc. So, um, so the journalism. Um, I mean, do you think it's crazy that we're we're now looking at? You know, there was there was one of the one of the other magazines. I can't remember. It may it may well have been NBR. And there was a feature, and there was a feature on, I, I kind of, I don't know whether this is just making me sound like a, a, an old sod, but there was, there was a feature on, you know, first time bikes, and they were around the two, two and a half grand mark. And I thought, is that just the way of the world, or is it absolutely bonkers that someone, a parent out there is going, if the kid wants a proper first bike and they buy a bike magazine, you know, of which MBR is yeah. a terrific yeah. you know, uh, leading example, they're looking at it and the kid's going, oh, mum, you know, this is, this is a feature on my first bike and it's two and a half thousand pounds, which is a vast sum well, of money. Well, yeah, I mean, head down the forest to Dean or Bike Park Wales and there are quite a few youngsters, usually from cycling families, 
on some decent machinery, yeah. and that might be mum or dad's. I just first wonder, I think, suspension bike. I mean, I, I mean, MBR have done usually do their hardtail of the year. I mean, supply's been a problem this year, so in, in times past they've had a choice of twenty four bikes. This year, I think they had no more than half a dozen, um, maybe eight, six, seven, eight, something like that. Yeah. And they were around the thousand pound mark. But I think that gets you a good hardtail as a starting point. If you want to then dip your toes in full suspension, drop a seat post, better tyres. And is it just is that just the reality that actually when you start adding in these additional components that you know a good set of forks is going to be five hundred quid? Well, I think a, a, you know, a drop is going to be well. There, there is quid. that. I mean, when you want a full suspension frame, you need something well engineered, something that's going to last in in, in wet UK conditions. Also, last on under somebody who isn't that sympathetic to how the the bike itself uh, yeah. and maybe mis-shifting, hitting, hitting the trail harder than they should, landing yeah, things I, I badly. Get that. So it makes sense to be directed towards a bike that's going to help you progress to the next sort of chapter of your mountain biking, really. One thing that is different to a few years ago, if we're comparing the, you know this 2022 versus 30 years ago, is that the chain stores themselves have got good own brand bikes. Um, go outdoors who were, who were doing the caliber boss nut that yeah, became yeah. A, had a cult following really as a very affordable well regarded first time full suspension yeah. bike for little more than a quality hardtail and there's still a bunch of those around I don't know whether who, who does Vetus well Vetus was I think is owned by Chain Reaction is that Chain Reaction or um, Evans do one as well and, I yeah, mean, they're, 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 they're online only um Vetus was an old, that's got a huge history going back in time. That was a brand they bought. Um, so Vetus originally was a road bike brand from mainland, okay. from France. Um, I don't know quite what happened to Vetus, but basically they had some really, really, um, you know, sound offerings on road bikes and cyclocross bikes going back into the sort of 70s and 80s. Uh, so, it's good. so again, it's so a good heritage. It's not it's like the heritage. Old, it's, yeah. not, it's not like a, like the, the piss taking of, oh, I no. went to this shop and whatever else. They're a quality product. So what's the this sort of, um, you know, time, time's racing on. So the, you know, the, ne- the future of, of mountain biking, I, 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 we haven't deliberately, I deliberately haven't mentioned mention mobility scooters. Because that's what I'm calling them now. Because everyone with an e-bike seems intent on, um, and actually this is this is maybe I should put this into controversy corner. This this is a message. This is a very clear message from from me to every e-bike owner. If you describe a mountain bike using the word analog or any other acoustic. term, acoustic. Um, you sound like a lunatic. You sound deranged. Stop doing it. It makes you sound like an idiot. There are mountain bikes. We don't need to change their name. You've added something electronic, so yours is an e-mountain bike. <laughs> don't, don't start changing the name of my bike because <laughs> you're nervous about the fact yours now has a motor. See, that was hard-hitting, wasn't it? it He's was. staring at me now. Yeah. He's staring at yeah. me. I wondered where it was going. <laughs> You know your name's on this podcast, so all this e-bike right. hate's coming at you as well. Right. But, yeah. Hey, I think e-bikes, they have a place. We're going to do a completely separate podcast, but it's like, I cringe when someone describes a, a mountain bike as, I'm going to ride on the acoustic one. Oh my God, you sound like a lunatic. Please mm. stop doing it. Mm. But, mm. Mate, what do what? I think? What do I think? Well, so, I think they're popular. and they're, they're, I think initially, 
the shops I've worked in, it was a little bit of a slow start. I mean, that was mostly down to the staff probably not riding them and therefore not being particularly interested in them. But there was pockets of riders where one rider would buy one um, in the group and then the group sort of riding dynamic would change when yeah. another one would join. And then realistically, it sort of snowballs after that. So you tend to find these groups of riders who've all got them. Uh, do you know, Joe, I think it's my... Uh, that's, what that, that's what I'm seeing. Um, there's obviously older people who've sort of using it to get back maybe mountain biked in the if, 90s, if, and now they're, they're buying again after a long lull. You, you've, you've absolutely, in two sets, summed up my... I totally get... If, if an e-bike allows someone, facilitates someone to ride who otherwise wouldn't, it's a thing of beauty and it should be welcomed. So someone who wouldn't normally be able to get out... What's happened, and I've seen it in multiple groups, is you've got five guys. One guy goes off the back. For whatever reason, he's a bit older, he's less fit, etc., etc. He would then buy an e-bike. And the way it should work is that allows him to close the gap to join the guys in front of him, yeah. his four mates on mountain bikes. What happens in reality is he then, rather than catching up with his mates because he's used to being at the back, he's now zooms off to the front. And actually, guys who were perfectly fit, healthy, and enjoying riding their bikes somehow are made to look or feel like they really need an e-bike because the whole bloody dynamic of the group is moving faster. Yeah. It's a bit like this thing about wildebeest crossing the Serengeti. The crap ones at the back get picked off, so the herd starts moving faster. <laughs> I guess a, this happens with fat bikes, is it? Somebody buys no, a fat no, bike. No, fat bikes are solidarity. We are purists. We, you know, we, you go the speed of the slowest rider because we... Fat bikes is like being seven again and jumping on your first bikes. It's gloriously silly and you're dicking about with your mates in the woods just smiling at how ridiculous your bike is. That is, in a well, sentence, the I'm glory just, of fat bikes. I'm just thinking how in, in, in 30 odd years in retail, I don't know, I, I don't know I have, whether I've actually sold a fat bike, you know, Richard. Have you ever ridden one? I have ridden one, yes. I think I've sold a couple, but not from stock. This is customers coming in either wanting to add one to their fleet out of curiosity. Um, whereas Graham from Slam 69 in Gloucester, yep. I mean, that's been a good chunk of his business for some time, really. It's, it's a, do you know what? It's a niche. And I'd love to, we're, we're time, time's coming to an end. I'm, I'd love to get you back on and chat about some of these niches because I think there's some fascinating. One of the things I love about mountain biking is the camaraderie. I was down at Forest Dean earlier there were so many different groups of people. There, there was lots of kids down there. There was this um, wonderful rider, pint-sized cyclist, Daisy Adams and her mum were there. Wonderful, age five, can beat me down a trail. There were some old guys, um, or, or much older guys than me, going around on their e-bikes. There were some proper downhill guys with all the gears, and everyone was there as a melting pot. Yeah. And everyone was sat there having a coffee, talking, looking at each other's bikes, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a thing of... of just really makes the mountain bike community a community. Um, and I think that's the only thing I don't like about the, the, the motor scooter, the, the, the e-bikes is I worry, and I'm going to leave us on this bombshell. Well, no, no, I, I worry it's going to introduce a two tier system in mountain biking that doesn't need to exist. It's the have and the have nots, not just based on someone being slightly fitter or slightly younger actually you can buy your way into fitness well certainly they're, they're not a cheap but well they're, they're a cheap so I, so this is this is i'm going to end this on a cliffhanger mate this is how good okay. this podcast is yep. 
Until next time. Until next time, leave you with this thought. Are e-bikes going to split the mountain bike community in half? Boom. Look at that. Sean White, thank you so much for joining me, mate. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, uh, see, yeah, I look forward to the next, uh, next chapter. Fantastic. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll see you next time. Cheerio.